Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Simon Stevenson on his debut novel, Set My Heart to Five. Simon Stevenson is the author of the award-winning Let Not the Waves of the Sea, a memoir about the loss of his brother in the Indian Ocean tsunami. He works as a screenwriter in both the UK and the US, and his credits include the forthcoming Amazon film Lewis Wayne, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. His first novel, Set My Heart to Five, which we're going to be talking about today, has also been optioned for a film by Edgar Wright. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to, to join you. Um, so, first of all, how would you describe this novel? Yeah, so I really need to have a, a quicker pitch than the one that I do, because when, when I begin to describe it, it tends to take me about 10 minutes, usually. I think the the most straightforward version is it's a story about an android who yearns to feel and sets out to convince his human overlords that he should be allowed to feel. Um, and he does that through the medium of our most most popular mass media, which is making a, a, a movie. So he tries to write a screenplay to convince humans that androids like him should be allowed to feel. And indeed, I wanted to talk about the, the format of the book. You're obviously a screenwriter yourself. Yeah. Jared, the android in the book, has an ambition to become a screenwriter. And right from the off, the book is sort of split into pages of screenwriting as well as the first-person narration sections that Jared narrates himself. Tell us about that that sort of style of the book. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, I, mean, I mean, the book is mostly prose, and then there's a few sections that are, that are in screenplay format. Partly, I felt like it was very odd to be writing a book about someone writing a screenplay without having some screenplay in there, simply. But there was also really a point-of-view thing in that I think when you're... The book's written in, in the first person, so it's it's the android recounting the tale. But because he's someone who doesn't... I mean, his journey is to, is to have feelings and understand feelings. Sometimes it felt like seeing things not entirely from his perspective, but from a sort of outside, broader perspective might make those moments feel more emotional or bigger. So, so it tends to be the bits that are in screenplay format, they tend to be the bits that uh, Jared probably couldn't convey very well in prose himself. So they tend to be usually conversation with another character and an important conversation because of course screenplay is wonderful for that, that if you have a, an important conversation to get across, it's much 
easier and more effective to do it in screenplay format than it is to have you know he said this she said that he said this they said that um i have to confess that i didn't invent this technique there's uh i think a few people have done it over the years my inspiration um truman capote has a kind of minor book called well it's not a minor book but but a minor section in i think it's in music for chameleons and he did these things called conversational portraits in which he would he sort of prefaced it by saying he had worked as a writer and a screenwriter and he wanted to combine those two things and so he would kind of write a profile of someone but included in it would be conversations with him so for instance there's one with where he follows his housekeeper around new york for a day and he's writing about her job but also interviewing her at the same time and the interview parts are in screenplay and then there's another one that he does with uh, marilyn monroe where they go to the funeral of her acting coach and that's that's a really beautiful piece so let's um introduce us to jared tell us more about who yeah he is. yeah Sure. So, so, so I think we probably would have to start by just talking a bit about the world in 2054, which is when the book set, because obviously that will give us the context for um, how androids are there. I've been describing the world as not a dystopia, but as a mystopia. So the idea is that everything's kind of the same as our world, but just a bit worse, you know, you know, so, so it's not there's not some tyrannical totalitarian government, although you know, at current rate of progress, maybe, maybe I got that one wrong. And so, so, but the idea is that by 2054, the world is mostly just a little bit worse. And one of the reasons... Tell that to anybody from New Zealand. <laughs> oh, sure. Right. E- exactly. Yes. New Zealand and North Korea have a, a particular issue by 2054 in, in this book. And I apologize to any, any listeners from well, either of those places. The idea is that there's been in... You know, progress has kind of continued along the way you'd think it would continue, apart from in 2037, there was a uh, essentially a great data loss event, which is known as the Great Crash. But the idea is that it's a, it's a human problem. So, so, so what happened was, you know, when you forget your you forget your email password and then it sends it to your old email that you haven't used since 2007. And so you have to try and get into your old email. And you to do that, you have to remember the name of your first pet and and your favorite teacher and you can never quite remember exactly who your favorite teacher was um, because maybe there's a few candidates so the idea is that on a critical day in 2037 enough people forgot the name of their favorite teacher that basically it triggered a a sort of wave of panicked mass forgetting with the upshot being that we were the entire world was locked out of the internet being locked out of the internet of course has terrible repercussions you know power stations fail planes fall out of the sky all of those terrible stuff so so the world in by 2054 is sort of a weird mix of some fairly futuristic technologies but also some really sort of antiquated things so for instance there's no airlines anymore you can't take a plane anywhere because after all the planes fell out of the sky, of course, all the airlines and the manufacturers, they're all still locked in lawsuits and have been for 20 years by the time the story takes place. But one thing that has happened is China, of course, was far too smart to ever lock itself out of the Internet. So technological process has uh, continued in some places, particularly China. And so by 2054, we have androids. And the sort of the basic conception for an android is, I'm sure you're listeners are well aware of the pretty miraculous stuff that can be done with CRISPR nowadays and and editing of the genome. And my basic thought was to make an Android, which, you you know, again, you probably know this, and I'm not really a science fiction person, so I had to learn this, but an Android conventionally is a 
a human style body or at least a human looking body with some sort of computer or robot type brain. And so the idea is that by 2054, we've learned that to make an Android, really all you have to do is you have to identify the the bit of the human genome that codes for consciousness and then use CRISPR to remove that and replace it with the source code for Windows 95. And at that point, you will then have a programmable Android. So with, you know, a body that's made of flesh and blood. And so the idea in the book is that as humans, we've, you know, we're, we're of course thrilled when we first got Androids and we're like, they can do all our work for us. But then we realized that actually as humans, work is quite important to us and, and we quite enjoy work and it gives us meaning and value. So we basically made all the androids do the jobs that we don't want to do, such as being a dentist. So the Jared in, in the book is a, is a dentist. And then the other thing that we did is we realized that as humans, really the only advantage we have over androids and artificial intelligence in general is our feelings because you know, the androids are going to be better than us at pretty much everything else. So, of course, as humans, we, we instituted this very strict rule that any time an android starts to show anything that resembles a feeling or even, even a hint of it, that android must be, you know, either uh, wiped or incinerated. Um, and so in the book, we joined Jared and he's a, a dentist in, in, in the Midwest of America and he's, you know, just doing exactly what he's programmed to do. And then one day he starts to wonder if he is experiencing feelings and that's the trigger for his for his journey. So let's talk about how you how you created Jared then. Tell me about the sort of research you did into, you know, into both, I guess, both fictional androids, but also what research is being done into you know both the sort of genetic CRISPR manipulation but also you know any sort of actual research into androids how did you actually develop the android of your book sure i mean i i have to confess here that i'm you know by no means any kind of expert in this uh i think one of the one of the triggers or one of the most interesting things I guess that, you know, years ago started me thinking about this stuff was um, Nick Bostrom's book, which I think is called Superhumans. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you came across that one. He is professor of the future of humanity at Oxford University. So, you know, as much as anyone might have an idea about where our world's going, he's probably the person that would. And his, uh, there's, there's a metaphor in that book where he describes, and, I, and I'm sure I'm going to paraphrase it horrifically, but he describes our relationship to artificial intelligence as like a group of chickens finding a baby hawk and deciding that they're going to raise this thing up to be their slave and, you know, what could possibly go wrong. Um, so I, I think that book, you know, had had a big impact in kind of setting me thinking about, about the future. In terms of like the scientific detail, like I am by trade, I, I, was, a, I was a physician, so I've always been, you know, a, a science person at heart. But with this book, I actually kind of, I slightly soft pedaled the the science part of it because the I think the really interesting thing to me was this was a mechanism to look at feelings and actually even though it's an android you know my real question was you know what does it mean to be human and how what is it that makes us humans and what is it that makes us not not androids I wanted to sort of bring us on to the the, the moment when Jared starts to develop feelings well first of all he he finds this number in his number bank in his memory which sort of seems to suggest um like a feeling of mortality a feeling of sort of impending doom because it's 
it's almost a countdown for him. And then, as you said, he goes to see a film realizes that he's basically leaking he's like sprung a leak and he's and he's obviously not willing to admit at first that it's tears and so his colleague sends him on this this trip and you, you brilliantly use like you know he goes to see love story and blade runner and um the shawshank redemption and um and various films that are to deliberately to evoke emotions in him i want to talk about this idea of using film as as a mean to evoke feelings. Well, I mean, I, I think the other part to mention is, I during the time when I began to think about the book, my day job was writing a film at a animation company in San Francisco, who I'm not allowed to name yet because the movie hasn't come out. But it's the big animation company in San Francisco, and they're really their thing is they make emotional films that that's what they're famous for and and they really do kind of make a science of it you, you know so, so so i spent a lot of a lot of time uh in the preceding year or two before writing the book kind of like studying how emotion in film works and how we incite a, an emotional reaction in, in the audience because i think ultimately that's that's the currency of film isn't it and it's probably the current all art, in fact, is that, you know, we all love a good plot and we love a good thriller and we love a good payoff, but there's really nothing like having an emotional experience in uh, with a book or a film or, or a painting or, 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 or something like that. So, um, and what kind of struck me when I began to, you know, think about this and think about what the, what the Android might experience is that actually the movies that we grew up with for, for all of their flaws and, of course, you know, no one's saying they didn't have flaws. The one thing they always did have was, was it feels like the real currency of so many of those films was kind of emotion and heart. And I don't know if as our as our tastes have become more sophisticated, we've we've slightly lost quite so much interest in that generally. But certainly when I you know think about a lot of my most formative experiences in in the cinema, they they're often movies which. Tom Hanks starred in. Um, they're fairly often movies in which Meg Ryan played opposite him. And they were really all movies which, yeah, w- which were really designed and, and sometimes over-designed to tug on the heartstrings. And, and I think that they felt like the right movies to make an android I- emotional. And of course, it's supposed to be a bit of a joke as well that, you know, of course, in, in our current day, if you're a, a cinephile, the last thing you would do would be to say that you like Sleepless in Seattle or, or a movie like that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Simon Stevenson. We're talking about his debut novel, Set My Heart to Five. And Simon, you talked in the in the first half a little bit about how the world got to where it was, um, the world in the book got to the position it was at the, the time of the story. I just want to talk about building that world. I think the, I mean, one of the jumping off points was I was living in San Francisco at the time, and the thing about being there and particularly the company I work for work you, you know they style themselves as a, a tech company even though they're what they make as films and really just kind of so many of the people that I met in San Francisco you know just in passing at events or parties or something you know every second person seemed to be working on a startup and all the startups seemed to be on the face of it they sounded very plausible and you know charming and they all had some funny sweet name and some wonderful pitch but when you dug into it you know you would always sort of say well hang on are robots that deliver home euthanasia really a good idea (laughs) like like is this actually a good thing that you're are you doing this because this is going to advance the world or are you doing this because you can you know So, so i think there was like like an element of just being around that environment that got me thinking about it in terms of the um in terms of the world building itself i'm definitely interested not so much in when it goes right but when it goes wrong you know there's a there's a quote which i which i read and i'm so sorry i can't remember who it's by but there was a a, i think a a science fiction writer maybe even philip k dick uh who said this thing about you know it's very easy to imagine the the flying cars but what you have to imagine is the traffic jam of flying cars and i'm definitely more interested in the traffic jam of flying cars rather than the rather than the flying cars themselves and so i think the other thing i did was probably just that sort of duality of there's been lots of technological progress in some ways and then way less in others, I think kind of buys you quite a lot of leeway in terms of, of world building. And then some of it is just, you know, just kind of looking at where we are today and, and extrapolating. So one of the one of the jokes or themes in the book is that um, there isn't a moon anymore. And the reason we don't have a moon anymore is because Elon Musk has incinerated it. And again, of course, it being you know, not a dystopia, but a mystopia, you know, it wasn't some wicked, sinister plan to incinerate the moon. It was simply he thought it would be a hilarious prank because obviously 
you know, we know he's someone who does like pranks and that they're not always received as he intended them. And then you mentioned uh, you mentioned the North Korea and New Zealand thing. And again, that was just, you know, a little bit of thinking about, well, what will the world look like geopolitically? And obviously a country that you expect, you know, may well be in the news in the future is North Korea because it's in the news so much already. And then a country that historically hasn't been much in the news is New Zealand. So the sort of one of the things in the book is that one of the main ways the world has changed by 2054 is that we no longer have a North Korea or a New Zealand. And the reason for that was that North Korea finally got their ballistic nuclear weapon and they wanted to test it and kind of show off. And they thought that, so they looked around for, you know, who they might nuke. And they decided that if they nuked New Zealand, no one would notice, or at least they wouldn't mind. But of course, people did mind very much. And so that was the demise of both of those countries. One of the other aspects of of this idea of it being like a sort of retrofitted future that I really loved was often in in films, if I think of something like, I don't know, iRobot or something that's about you know, our relationship with artificial intelligence or androids, the company that makes these things, or at least, you know, obviously these these in your particular book are, are made by a company in China, but once they're in the US, um, they come under the purview of, of the Bureau of Robotics, yeah. which is a an antiquated bureaucracy, as it turns out. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it's an interesting one because I think people in the US would probably fairly quickly recognize the Bureau of Robotics as being a kind of modern incarnation of, of the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, um, who, of course, are the the US equivalent of the DVLA. But whereas the, the DVLA in the UK is, you know, in my experience, it was always something, it was in Swansea, right? And you always... Yeah. You, you, you send your stuff off to Swansea and, you know, a week later it comes back and, and it's sorted out. Whereas the DMV here, I think most Americans probably spend several days, if not weeks of their lives at the DMV over the course of their lives. And it's kind of just notorious as one of the, as you say, just a sort of terrible struggling bureaucracy that's really overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the work it has um there was a good scene in the movie um the disney movie zootropolis was it i don't know if it was called zootropolis or zootopia in the uk they had a couple of different titles but there's a scene there that's set in the dmv and of course the thing about that movie is all the characters are animals um and they go to the dmv and everyone working there is is a sloth um and so everything just takes an incredibly long time which of course you know, probably isn't fair to the hardworking employees of the DMV, but I think that probably shows you a little bit of where the DMV is in in the popular imagination here. And certainly it it was the DMV that I had in mind in terms of, I think what I was looking for was I was looking for a something that could be a a genuine threat to Jared the Android. And of of course it is genuinely a threat, but also something that's slow moving enough that you have time to have a novel before they begin to catch up with him. We've talked about the theme of of him developing feelings in the book, and you know what that causes the you know the plot to happen. But um, I want to talk about the the theme of loneliness in the book as well, which which is something that Jared starts to realise that he is feeling when he hasn't really realised he was feeling that before. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is really like this is probably the most heartfelt part of the book in some ways, in that. You know, as as an android, Jared is, of course, um, 
you know he's an outsider and, and he kind of wants to fit in but he doesn't just doesn't quite know how to do it you know and he worries about saying the wrong thing and he wants to be polite and you know he doesn't want to offend anyone and i think for me and i'm sure like a lot of people those are all things that i can relate to fairly fairly deeply and so there was kind of there was a definitely a background of of wanting to write about a sort of yearning for a deeper connection which i think as humans many of us have i mean i think in some ways that that's often why people become writers is is because they're better at communicating on the page than we are in real life sometimes i think you know that's probably true for me and then the other part is that when i was um at the time that i began to write the book i had been living in san francisco and the year before i had been in a i'd been living in los angeles and i'd been in a a long-term relationship and it kind of ended and you know I, i moved to san francisco and on you know, on the face of it, it was, I was, you know, I was really living the dream. You, you know, I was, had my dream job in this city that I'd always hoped I might get to live in one day, but I was, I was pretty lonely, you know, because I was alone in a, in a new city. And, you know, of course I knew some people and I worked with some people, but that sense of loneliness and and the search for connection was, was probably pretty acute in me personally that year. And I think, you know, I, I, it's probably reflected in the book. To finish us off, can I get you to read us a bit? please absolutely yeah so um i think the the best bit to read is probably just the beginning because that sort of it introduces our character jared hi my name is jared i am sincerely pleased to meet you also i am a bot unless you have been living under a rock in north korea or new zealand ha you of course know what a bot is nonetheless i am programmed to relay the following dialogue to each new human i encounter Please do not be fooled by my human-like appearance. I am a mere bot. I do not have feelings or anything else that might be misconstrued as a soul. Instead, I have been programmed to a high level of proficiency in dentistry. Should you have any concerns, please immediately report me to the Bureau of Robotics. But humans rarely find this information calming. Instead, they see a fellow human standing in front of them, claiming that he is not a human. This bamboozles them. It often bamboozles them so profoundly that they exclaim, but you look so human. I then patiently explain to them what they anyway already know. That my body looks human because it is indeed a human body. This is engineered from DNA and constructed of cells the exact same way their own body is. It has the same basic needs, food, water, oxygen, regular exercise, and it can be injured or killed in all the same comically outlandish ways any other human body can. Yet I am definitely not human, because the precious thing that sets humans apart is their feelings. And as a bot, I am specifically designed and programmed to be incapable of feelings. I can no more feel than a toaster. Ha! By the way, that is a hilarious joke, because the program language I run on was in fact first developed many years ago for use in the domestic toaster. Here is something curious I have observed about humans. Informing them I am incapable of feeling often makes them feel sad. I suspect they believe they're being empathetic. But in fact, they're being paradoxical. After all, feeling sad in response to someone telling you they lack feelings is like running a marathon in response to somebody telling you they lack legs. Truly, if I lacked legs and somebody ran a marathon on my behalf, I would not consider them empathetic. I would consider them confused. Nonetheless, it makes them sad. And making humans sad goes against my core programming. 
If ever I accidentally render a human sad in this way, I therefore quickly employ self-deprecating humor to amend the situation with reassuring levity. So I tell the human they can think of me as a microwave oven with feet, a mobile telephone with arms, a toaster with a heart. By the way, I mean a heart in the sense of a mechanical pump, not a bucket of feelings. The hearts of us bots are only ever mechanical pumps, and they certainly do not contain anything as precious as a human heart of hearts. Humans are only sad about our lack of feelings because they do not comprehend all the incredible advantages this gives us. To start with just one important example, a bot's self-preservation instincts are based not on a human-type delusion that we are irreplaceable, but calculated on a rational cost-benefit analysis. It is hardly a coincidence that many bots have already made heroic and self-sacrificing contributions in fields as varied as nuclear firefighting, bomb disposal and NFL football playing. My own vocation of dentistry is also ideal work for a bot. But this is not because we're expendable. After all, dentistry is rarely fatal. At least, it is not fatal for the dentist. Ha! No, the primary reason bots make such excellent dentists is our complete inability to feel empathy. An empathic dentist, by which I mean a human dentist, could easily become distracted by inappropriate fear, criticism, or even mere crying from a patient. A bot is immune to all of these things and will get the job done every time, even when it comes to wisdom teeth removal. Of course, the other reason why dentistry is ideal work for bots is that no human wants to do it anymore. Humans prefer jobs that are creative, social, clean, luxurious, and can be completed from a home office between breakfast and lunch. They strongly dislike jobs which involve an actual office, weekend work, children, blood, screaming, and the mouths of strangers. Therefore, when the laws reserving jobs for humans were being passed, nobody spoke up for dentistry, especially not the dentists. Ha! So I've been talking to Simon Stevenson. We've been talking about his debut novel, Set My Heart to Five, which is out now in the UK from Fourth Estate. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much, Neil. I've enjoyed this a lot. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 